Hello, and welcome to a special edition of The Stakes, a political podcast that tends to veer away from politics with frightening regularity, but today is rocketing so far in the other direction that we've actually passed political, circumnavigated the globe, and landed in some Bermuda Triangle locus of pure fuckery. I'm Holly Anderson, MTV's Director of Politics and News, coming to you from our Los Angeles studio, and this is not our normal show. If you're out there listening to this the day we released it, never fear, our regular episode will be put out tomorrow like always, but we had a big topic to tackle, this aforementioned locus of fuckery that we are apparently, globally, insisting on calling Brexit. MTV News senior political correspondent Anna Marie Cox called up Felix Salmon, senior editor at Fusion, to sort through the beginnings of the fallout from last week's shattering UK referendum. This interview was recorded prior to Boris Johnson's announcement that he won't run for prime minister, but the greater point of what in the hell still stands. So I think listeners will be able to tell you have some personal experience to bring to the matter of Brexit. What's your background? So my background is I was born and raised in London. Uh, I was born of an English father and a German mother. So I have dual nationality, English and German. I grew up in England and a little bit in Germany and a little bit in the US. And so I am the quintessential European flighty cosmopolitan who travels around the world and right. hangs out in a bunch of different places and has friends of like all races and nationalities and cannot imagine why anyone who has the freedom to live and work in 28 different countries would voluntarily give that up and say, no, no. No, I'm perfectly happy just here in little old Blighty on my own. You know, it makes no sense. None. No, it makes no sense, but you are being a little sarcastic, right? No, I'm being genuine. The thinking behind the leave vote is just completely foreign to you? Well, the thinking, I mean, let's, let's, let's call a spade a spade here. The thinking that brought the leave vote about was, to put it politely, you know, little Englandism, and to put it less politely over racism. And we've seen a huge uptick in, in racist behavior and open overt xenophobia since the Brexit vote happened. No one is saying that 52% of Britain is racist, but what seems to be undeniable is that all of the racists in Britain, and there are a lot of them, think that 17 million people agree with them. And there are people who, I mean, you know, I was just reading today, there are people who genuinely believe that if you voted leave, that would mean that all of the foreigners in England would have to leave, you know, the following day. <laughs> they, and thought this is, leave, they thought leave was an instruction. Exactly. They thought it was like an imperative. And, yeah. and you know, there were countless stories of Danes and Poles and everyone else, sort of like people coming up to them in restaurants and on the street and saying, you have to leave now. Mm-hmm. Which, is, which is crazy on so many levels, not least that no one, even in the Leave campaign, has said that that is what is going to happen or is what they want to happen. If you're legally living and working in the UK, everyone is completely fine with the fact that you can continue to do that, except for the morons who voted for leave. And, you know, I'm not going to be, you know, fair and balanced here. The fact is that you, you know, it was it was not 
you know, smart people right. voting to leave. It was a bunch of small-minded xenophobes. Yeah, and I, I, meant, I meant to be like, you know, like this is the reason why leave one, right? Is because no one likes being told that they're stupid. And the message from the media and the elites in the UK in the run-up to the election was, if you are smart, you vote remain. And if you want to vote leave, then you're stupid, which is not a really good way of getting people to vote remain and not vote leave. Um, so that's one of the reasons why we lost. Um, mm. But now it's all water under, now it's like a sunk cost. Now it's happening anyway. I, you know, I feel no compunction about just being open about this. Um, I had two things I wanted to say, first of which is I was disappointed to know that Little England has nothing to do with We Britain, um, which is the place in Arrested Development, one of the a theme park featured in Arrested Development. Um, although now I, I think that must have been I, I, I didn't know Little England was a term, but it is. It is. It, yeah, it, it's not the Arrested Development theme park. It's a reference to what we might call flyover country, perhaps in the U.S., correct? Perhaps I think I think it basically refers to, you know, there was there was this one. We had this prime minister once who was a very boring prime minister called John Major, and he once started waxing lyrical about the life of life in an English small town where you sit around drinking warm beer and watch men play cricket, and that's pretty much you know Little England in a nutshell. There's nothing vibrant about it. Nothing ever changes. It's, you know, old women behind chintz curtains and lots and lots of cups of tea. And, <laughs> and, and certainly, certainly no, like, brown people. Right. Or even, and, and, you know, I mean, like, I'll be a little bit you know, this is probably the most sympathetic to the Leave campaign that I'll, I'll be the whole time. The, there, there was a bunch of contributing causes to this. Um, one of them is that in the latest round of expansion of the European Union, Romania joined the EU. And there was this feeling of, oh, yeah, we're perfectly fine with French people coming over and opening up restaurants. And we're perfectly happy with like German people coming over and you know fixing our computers or Polish people coming over and building our houses because... You know, given the choice between a Polish plumber and an English plumber, every single English person will choose the <laughs> Polish plumber because they know what they're doing. Um, but you know, then you know, then there was this kind of you know, to be you know honest about it, just totally racist sort of gypsy scare, basically when the Romanians started coming in, and then you had the, the Syrian refugee crisis, and and all countries have an aversion to immigration. It's a kind mm -hmm. of like, it's a natural thing when you're a nation state and we might bemoan it, but it is a thing that exists. And the amount, you know, the number of foreign born people in the United Kingdom has gone up from three and a half million people in 1993 to eight and a half million people right now. Um, which, you know, people in London think is wonderful. People like me think is wonderful because, like, all of the cool and excellent stuff which is going on in Britain is being done by those eight and a half million immigrants. So we're like, yay, bring it on. Um, but if you're the kind of person who doesn't like immigration or who has problems with immigration, then the kind of immigration that's happening right now from places like 
Syria and Romania is particularly worrying and did certainly contribute to that leave vote. I, I do want to address kind of the immediate aftermath, um, which was the dramatic fall in the stock markets. Uh, but that seems to have sort of righted itself right away. Is that the case? So it depends how you're looking at it. So the, the UK stock market is now more or less where it was before the Brexit vote in pounds, right? Mm -hmm. So if you had, you know, a thousand pounds in the stock market before Brexit, you now have a thousand pounds in the stock market. And so you're like, I haven't lost any money. Except for if you had a thousand dollars in the British stock market before Brexit, you now have $900. You've lost like 10% of your money. So it kind of depends what currency you're denominating this in. <laughs> Which is sort of important, right? Right. I mean, I think if you're talking about this sheer buying power, um, it means something that the pound still hasn't recovered. And it's actually, it's still, it's a, still a pretty dramatic short-term loss. Uh, one right? of the reasons why the um, stock market has recovered in the UK is precisely because people have realized that this drop in the value of the pound is not some weird temporary glitch. And if anything, is going to continue to get worse. And while that's really bad for you know anyone in Britain who wants to travel abroad, and it's really bad for um, you know the purchasing power of the pound internationally, it's great for British exporters. And so, given how many exporters they are, there are in in the UK economy and on the UK stock market, their stock prices have been going up because suddenly, if you're making widgets in England, those widgets are dirt cheap to the rest of the world and everyone is going to be beating a path to your door trying to buy them. Um, you know, add on top of that, it's going to be a minimum of two years and probably much longer um, before Britain actually leaves the EU. So what you have is this incredibly you know, powerful devaluation within the EU that Britain has just done, which has made it very strong in, as an exporter for as long as it remains in the EU, which no one knows how long that's going to be. Right. So what's happening is an, it's artificially a part of a free market segment. It's still part of the right. EU. It has a very, very competitive currency now. It has like the, the right. most undervalued currency in the world, pretty much. And so any company in Britain which is selling without any trade barriers whatsoever for the time being right. to Europe is laughing. They're going, they're, they're raking in the orders because all of the Europeans are saying, wow, all of those things you make are really cheap because the pound has just fallen. And I guess what I was trying to point out, it's the irony of the fact that they, because they voted to leave this free, you know, market right. unit, they are now being, these, these exporters are now being able to take advantage of that for at least for the short term. For the for short the term. And years. then, and then like, yeah. And then once Britain leaves, all bets are off because Europe has every incentive to make the Brexit as painful as possible for Britain pour encourager les autres. Okay. And now let's let's return to the idea of what we were talking about earlier, which is like why this happened. Um, you were talking about the xenophobia, and uh, when I when I made a reference to the thinking behind the Leave campaign or the Leave voters, uh, you I think rightly mocked it because it was very much a heart, let's say, uh, decision more than a head decision. It, it seemed to be based a lot on feeling. Um, the feeling that Britain was being overwhelmed by immigrants, the feeling that there was some problem uh, with the European Union. Uh, but it is 
a, is it is it a parallel to the Trump phenomenon here in the U.S. in terms of this um, conservative, not can't even really properly call it a conservative uh, political movement because it's not classically yeah. conservative, and, and because it's and because it's so inchoate, you know. Right. My, my my friend Dan Davies had this tweet go like crazy viral where he's like, "If your heart says leave, but your head says remain, remember that one of them is an organ made for thinking, and the other one is." <laughs> a pump <laughs> um, right and but yeah people like I mean the 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 can't the obverse of that is the fact that people vote against their economic best interest all the time and mm-hmm. that whenever politics runs into economics politics wins and that if you go around telling a economically depressed part of the population whose median wages have been falling for decades and who are feeling put upon and who are seeing, you know, lots of happy, young, cosmopolitan people in London having fun while they're just being miserable without any money in the shires somewhere, you know, they will vote to, you know, fuck them all, you know? They will vote to fuck themselves just to spite everyone else. And add on top of that, this layer of constant misinformation. But what happened is that Boris Johnson was the, was the Brussels editor of the Daily Telegraph. And what he realized was, and this is kind of genius, what he realized is that he didn't actually need to tell the truth. That his job was to sell newspapers back home. And so what he would do is he would invent every week or multiple times a week, who would invent these crazy stories about how Brussels was trying to regulate the curvature of your banana. And it was all complete bullshit, but it was lapped up by the readers of the Telegraph who love to feel put upon, right? Who love to feel like, you know, there's nothing English people love more than to moan about, you know, the weather or just about (laughs) anything. The, the, The Australians call us whinging palms and they're absolutely right about this. And and so, you know, they would, so there became this national pastime of moaning about Brussels and moaning about Eurocrats. And the Telegraph started it and Boris Johnson started it. And then everyone else piled on. The Daily Mail was the worst. Um, the Daily Express did it as, as well. And you, it's very hard to impress upon an American how powerful the UK press is, that, you know, newspapers are in England. But everyone reads a paper, often multiple papers, and they really do form public opinion, especially if you have this steady drip of anti-Europe stories going on for decades. And that's exactly what we had. Now, you referred to uh, Boris Johnson, the former mayor of London, former Brussels editor for the Daily Telegraph. You referred to his insight as kind of genius, which means I think we can't make a direct comparison to Trump. (laughs) Boris Johnson is very, very smart. He's much smarter than David Cameron. He's much smarter than Donald Trump. Yeah, he's a tactician, um, you know, and he, he famously vacillated back and forth. He famously told David Cameron that he would support Remain before he changed his mind and decided to support Leave. He made a tactical decision to support Leave in the full expectation that Leave would lose, but that in supporting Leave, that would help him with the Tory grassroots membership, which would then elect him to be the next prime minister when David Cameron was no longer prime minister. He had, this was a very tactical decision by him because he wants to be prime minister. He actually 
this is not a good result for him. He didn't want Leave to win. He wanted Leave to lose, but he wanted to have made his stand. And a lot of people in England feel this way. They voted Leave because they wanted to make a point to Brussels. They didn't want to actually leave, but they wanted to make a point. Their ideal outcome would have been like 49.9% leave. Unfortunately, they got 52% leave, and now they're fucked. <laughs> I think that's something that um, that style of voting, this idea that you're sending a message, um, that's the one of the pieces of of what's happened with Brexit that frightens a lot of Americans, uh, because that's what I think people. The only way that Trump could win would be this idea that people are sending a message. I I don't believe that a majority of Americans actually want him to be president. I'm not convinced Trump wants to be president. Actually, right. Um, and I, I feel I, I feel like it's the same as the you know the Boris Johnson thing, like. It's a good career move for Trump if he loses. If he wins, then God help us all, including him, right. you know? Right, he has no idea how that, he, he, he doesn't even know what really the presidency is, I don't think. Right. Um, but I am just trying to sort of get to the bottom of like, because I'm aware of Americans' facile um, temptation, the, the way we want to make these sort of facile uh, comparisons between what we're like and what other countries are like. We want to just sort of paste ourselves over. So I just want to really try to understand the ways that the, Brexit vote is and isn't like what's happening here. Like, what do you think we we can learn from or should be seeing? I think that these parallels are difficult to draw because the European Union is so unique in so many ways. The idea that you would build an economic and political union among 500 people who spent thousands of years killing each other so that they would stop killing each other, you know, is not the driving force behind the United States. And certainly it's not something which is still in living memory. Like, you know, if you, one of the fascinating things about, about the Brexit result, we all know that the old people voted to leave. But there hasn't been great polling on this. But as far as I can tell, the very old people, the people who are old enough to remember World War II, they voted to remain mm -hmm. because they understand how important the European Union is and how important the European project is and just how, you know, bad it was before that project began in earnest. I wonder, I mean, I, I, again, am also aware of, I mean, maybe this is a, this is a temptation for journalists worldwide and not just Americans. I don't want to sensationalize this, but to me, it does seem like one of the ways it's not like what's happening here is the depth of chaos and the depth of turmoil that it seems to suggest. Like you said, the European Union project is a much more, in some ways, revolutionary project than the American one, or at least it's newer, right? Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a more, it's a, it's a experiment of much more recent vintage and it has a bloodier history. I mean, we have a pretty fucking bloody history ourselves, <laughs> but, but not, but, not, but there, very little American blood well, has been shed, you know, in the USA. Well, there was the one big one. There was the one years. big war, <laughs> but yes, the past hundred years. Correct. Right. And, and we have also, that's just one section of our country that fought against another section. You know, there weren't all these like multiple fronts. Um, and, and so is that something that I think that you think maybe we should be aware of, those of us that are looking at what's happening, that this is a much, 
it's a, it's a little bit too, one of the ways that it's too easy to say that it's like what's happening with Trump here is that we're not seeing the depth of the discord. Right. And and there is I mean, and there's discord on so many levels. I mean, for one thing, Europe is always closer to really nasty war than you might think. Not necessarily the EU, but it wasn't, you know, that long ago that we had an incredibly bloody war in the, you know, former Yugoslavia, which is right in the heart of Europe. That's where World War One started. Uh, more recently, we had uh, Russia invade Crimea. Crimea is in Europe. Uh, and, you know, you just have one country completely invading another country, and that happened, and they got away with it. So th that kind of, like, military chaos does happen in Europe and has happened really, really recently. Um, then domestically within the UK, obviously this has torn the Conservative Party apart. The, you know, the Prime Minister has said he's going to resign. No one knows who's going to replace him. No one knows what policies they should have. But more impressively, weirdly, it has torn the opposition apart, the Labour Party. Um, I've never seen in such a shambles. I mean, it is just, it's, it is absolutely astonishing to see. We've seen a no confidence vote in the leader of the Labour Party, which is like 170 to 40 or something. I mean, just mm -hmm. overwhelming. And in response, he decided to stay. <laughs> so what, in, in tell, tell us about that, because I think everyone saw Cameron resigned and there's now a little, there's a big question. And t tell me if I'm wrong, but was that quick resignation a kind of fuck you in and of itself? Like to be like, all right, you guys take care of this. Uh, I mean, everyone expected, well, certainly I expected that Cameron would re resign immediately upon losing the vote. The one vaguely intelligent thing he has done in his entire premiership was that he announced at eight o'clock in the morning on Friday morning that he would not be invoking Article 50, that he would leave that up to his successor. And that was smart. I think everyone understands the chaos happening in the Conservative Party, because that was the one that was more obviously split between leave it and remain, right? And that Cameron staked his career on this. And so, of course, he had to resign. And of course, the prime ministership is up in the air. But why is the Labour Party in chaos? <sighs> okay, this one, this one is, uh, is one of the places where the parallels to the US are a little bit stronger. So... Okay. One of the things that you can see in the Trump campaign, but also in the Sanders campaign, is a deep hatred and mistrust of the elites by the people. And what they're doing is they're voting for Sanders and they're voting t t for Trump as a kind of fuck you to the elites of both parties and to the politicians of both parties. And it's an anti-politician vote, right? And mm -hmm. that is basically the vote which elected the current leader of the Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn is, if you will, the Bernie Sanders of England. I mean, he's way, way to the left of Bernie Sanders. Oh. Like, it's not even close. But he's, he's that guy who has strong popular support among the kind of people who hate politicians. Um, but basically, as we just saw with the no confident votes, 
zero support among politicians and also has no ability in much the same way that Bernie Sanders could never win a general election in much the way the same way that Donald Trump could never win a general election. He has no ability to win a general election in the UK, no matter how much disarray the Tory party is in, the vast majority of Brits are going to take one look at him and go like, he's incapable of managing his way out of a paper bag. There was this um, vice documentary about him, which just revealed how completely shambolic he is and no one takes him seriously as potential prime ministerial material. So the, now that it looks like there's a pretty decent chance there's going to be another election, the Labour Party, the parliamentary Labour Party, the MPs are saying, the politicians are saying, we want to get elected, please. That's our job. We'd like to we, play. You know, right. like We'd the, like to the play Tory this party game. Is, has fallen apart. This is our opportunity to step up and to become and to form a government. But we can't do that with you in charge. So, you know, can you please step aside to make way for Angela Eagle or anyone else? Um, but Jeremy Corbyn is a bloody minded Englishman, if nothing else. And so he's saying, no, I won't force me. It's a disaster for the Labour Party just when, you know, it should be taking, you know, full advantage of the turmoil across the aisle. What do you think this, this, we talked about this being the olds versus the youngs, the youngs getting you know, royally fucked um, by the olds. Yeah, the olds, the olds are all going to die, right? And then they're going to leave right. the coming generations to suffer the consequences of, the gen of this decision, which they don't have to really live with much longer. Well, what did you think is going to happen even like in the middle term? Like they won't have, they won't be paying a cost for this. Oh, I mean, all, yeah. I mean, the, like. the Unless... value of their houses has gone down, the value of their investments no. has gone down, their ability to, you know, retire to Spain has gone down. They, okay. you know, they are going to pay a lot of costs which they haven't even started thinking about yet. Um, right. But they only have themselves to blame. That was MTV's Anna Marie Cox in Minneapolis in conversation with Felix Salmon of Fusion. And that'll do it for this special edition of The Stakes. Our full regularly scheduled episode will follow this one very shortly in your podcast feeds. And that reminds me, you can now subscribe individually to this and all other MTV podcasts on iTunes. And while I don't personally understand why you'd want to live your life without the likes of Game of Crones, North Mollywood, Speed Dial, or Skillset, unlike your state legislators, I'm not here to judge your perversions. I'm Holly Anderson. Thanks for listening. This special episode of The Stakes was produced by Michael Catano, Mukta Mohan, and Kasia Mihailovich for the MTV Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at MTV Podcasts, and subscribe to this and other MTV Podcasts on iTunes.